interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. What would you like to say? I've been talking for almost an hour here. Yes, sir. I'm interested in the uh, royal shepherd image that you made, and I'm wondering how that might apply to like Christ in John 10. Would they have understood Christ as a royal shepherd? Utterly. A Christian would have. You can't call this person the Christ and the shepherd. Remember Christos or in Greek, Mashiach, Messiah, if they understood him to be Messiah and Messiah is using a shepherd metaphor to describe himself, I'm the great shepherd, there's no doubt it would have royal connotations for them. Yeah. Every time the word shepherd appears in the Bible, it doesn't mean king. But when you get those kinds of combinations of things, yes. Uh, I, saw, I saw number two in the back. If you don't, I'll come back. Yes. Can you comment on the, when you refer to yeah, um, it's great. The, wonder, the wonderful thing about our adoption, as the Apostle Paul says, that our spirits bear witness to our adoption. In Romans 8, isn't it? This is New Testament. It's, it's Romans 8, isn't it? Okay, I don't know the New Testament. I like it. I read it once. It's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. Trust me. Um, um, <clears throat> Romans 8, he says... Uh, our spirit bears witness to our adoption as children of God because we cry out in our desperation. He's talking about the desperate moments of life under persecution. We cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba is uh, an endearing term. It's not in the ancient world like Popsy is with my granddaughter. Um, but it is a term of endearment. It is not um, great father, but it is father, nevertheless. Um, Aramaic, as a matter of fact. This is the wonder of the intimacy that we have as children of God and it, with our God. And that is that we don't have intimacy with someone who is near. We have intimacy with someone who is utterly transcendent. Yet in his mercy and in his grace, he welcomes us as his children into his arms. And we actually, in our desperation, cry out, Abba. Now, there is, there is this strange tension that takes place in the Christian life, it seems to me. And that is that when we get the Abba thing going, and it goes for a good amount of time, we suddenly lose the sense of transcendence. That this is a great and wondrous God who welcomes us into his presence. On the other side, if all you ever talk about is the transcendence of God, then you forget the Abba. And you have to have both of those to understand the wonder of either of them. And um, that's what I would say about it. Yes, yeah, magnificent. I'm glad you brought it up because you can't say everything when you say anything. You try and never say anything because you're always saying everything else. So I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Yeah. First of all, I want to say that, that what you said tonight was very helpful. I haven't, I haven't read your things or heard you before. This perspective is extremely helpful. Uh, Kings also... As I understand kings, although I didn't live back then, the kings also desire that their kingdom will grow and expand with time. And I'm wondering if, if part of this destiny, if you see the destiny in the way that somebody like Ken Gentry sees it, that there's going to be this 
on, that we're in the millennium now, that there's going to be the growth. The millennium means the amount of time God wants to bring about the full fruition of his kingdom. Well, apart from the millennium question, if I can avoid that one, let me just say that tomorrow morning we're going to be talking specifically about this idea of the kingdom growing. And it is a geographical and numerical growth that takes place. I mean, that is that is very essential. If you think Christianity is losing, you're watching TV too much. Okay? Christianity is doing just fine. Now it's not doing, it's not so hot here, I have to admit. Okay, we're kind of leveling out. Maybe, maybe we're going to become a Christian graveyard like other parts of the world. But the fact is Christianity is doing just fine. Fine. It's hot stuff in many places in this world. And Christ is extending his reign over every piece of geography. It's happening right before your eyes. How's that for a challenge? <laughs> Look at the news differently. Yes, sir. I have this question about um, the first claim you made, which is the, the dominant portrait of God in the Bible. A couple of questions. One, you seem to suggest that these titles that occur pretty frequently in even the Old Testament and New Testament, shepherd and father in particular, are somehow reducible to this notion of kingdom. And uh, two, two, um, two things I'd like to maybe get further clarification on are two things that maybe um, cut against that, and I'd like to hear your response one is it seems to me that a fatherhood is a more universal notion than, than kingship is. That we all presumably have, I mean, it's a very sort of common experience to experience fatherhood, whereas even as your comments made about Virginia, right, I mean, this is kind of foreign to us. Yes. There's a, there's a deep sense in which kingship is not a sort of universal kind of experience of humanity. And, right? I don't know, it seems like God revealing himself might pick a way to reveal himself, or at least the dominant way in one that would be universal. That's the first one. And the second one is, just sort of your examples, um, you know, Hammurabi wanted to explain his notion of kingship in terms of shepherdhood. You know, you, you can imagine a king also explaining his notion of kingship in terms of like, you know, well, I'm like your father, only, you know, written bigger, right? But that, that those two ways of talking, if I got that right, those make, that makes kingship a species of fatherhood, not the other way around, so that kingship wouldn't be the, the sort of irreducible notion, but fatherhood or shepherdhood. That, look, uh, God reveals himself in these different ways that are neither equivalent nor reducible to each other. And that's, you know, because he wants us to pick up on these sort of different, just even as you were talking about the transcendence and the imminence and the intimacy that God wants us to have, and to not get those notions confused, one way that he might do that is to give us, you know, pictures of himself that are producible. Good. Wonderful. Okay, let me uh, back up and say this. Um, if I gave the impression that I was saying that fatherhood should be reduced to kingship, I did not intend to do that. If I can clarify it this way, I was saying I gave a number of different things. I could have added to that light. That's another one that's often used of kings. Kings bring light, the dawning of the light, in fact. So it's interesting that biblical metaphors of light are actually associated with kingship, too. 
um, the association. These are metonymous relationships. Uh, it's not that one is reducible to the other, but rather the question is, which of these is the uh, umbrella concept? And um, the umbrella concept, it seems to me, in a w number two, uh, your issue of the fact that fatherhood is universal and a kingship is not. Yes, that's true in some sense, I suppose. Um, but the reality is that Christness is not universal either. God doesn't reveal himself in ways that are universal. He revealed himself in ways that were accommodated to the original setting of the Bible. And the accommodation that God made in revealing himself to humanity in the ancient Near East and during the days of the Bible was the appropriate um, accommodation that, yes, creates distance for us today. Just like we have to learn what it means to be a Messiah. We can't just make up what that is. We have to go back and figure that out. We have to do the same thing with the idea of God as Father um, and with any other concept in the Bible. So the accommodation that God makes to the human race so that we can understand the condescension and accommodation to us for our understanding is one that was done his, his, history specific, age specific, and that is the age of biblical revelation. And our responsibility is to learn those things and adopt those things. So I wouldn't say it's reduced to that. And I'm not saying I would suggest that um, the universality is not the issue. The issue is, is it biblical or not? Is it the Bible's dominant motif? And then we have to accommodate ourselves to his revelation of himself. And the third thing. I mean, if there isn't a sort of reducibility relation, right, then um, how, do we, how do we determine then what dominant means? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Uh, that's a good question, and that is how do you decide anything is dominant in a text, okay? especially when you're talking about subtexts or you're talking about sub-themes. It's not by counting up the number of times. If you were to count up the number of times, you'd have to say that humanity is much more important in the Bible than God is, okay? because people are talked about a whole lot more in the Bible than God is. Um, in fact, there's, one, there's not a single book in the Bible that doesn't talk about people, but there is a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Okay, And so it's very important to realize that it's not by counting beings that you decide what's dominant. What you have to do is basically is the hermeneutical circle of experimentation. You ask the question, all right, let me pick this one. How, does, how well does this work? How well does this bring coherence to the whole? And this one and this one and this one. And my proposal tonight, and it was a proposal uh, for which I gave four basic reasons, was that kingship is the one that brings more coherence than any of the others. Uh, we, could, we could look at the whole Bible from the angle of God as redeemer. You could. Okay? But the concept of redeemer is that of a warrior who goes out and fights and delivers you from enemies. And the warrior theme, of course, the divine warrior, is not foreign to the ancient world, but that every divine figure of any power was seen as a divine warrior because that's what kings were, warriors, good kings. And, uh, and so it is experimental, and you'll have to just ponder whether you think this is right or not. Are you able to put together your concept of kingdom with kingdom parables? Can we fit these with Jesus' parables about the mustard seed and the like? Yes, because what Jesus was doing was he was coming to a world where people were expecting the kingdom of God to come in a particular way. That is, the universal will of God on earth as it is in heaven that's what I mean when I say kingdom of God. Um, they were expecting it to come in a particular way. 
Now, they did this because it's what the prophets told them, basically. The Old Testament prophets painted this as something that would happen like that. Messiah would come and boom, it would all happen. And Jesus came and began to explain something that no one wanted to hear, including his own disciples. And that was, it's not happening all at once. That he was going to begin it. Jesus was going to inaugurate the kingdom, start it up, open the door to all the nations, begin this expansion of the kingdom all over the world. But it would take a long time for that to happen. And one day it would come to its culmination. So, yes, Jesus is operating in that very framework of the expectations of that day and then showing them how the expectations needed to be adjusted in light of the reality of how God had determined to do this through his son's humiliation and then his eventual uh, glorification in the new world. Uh, a lot of the Bible's pages uh, stem from Moses and Pentateuch and the law. I mean, he just talks a lot about how the law is kind of a foundation for everything. Do you think that Moses' understanding of being brought up in Pharaoh's house, I mean, understanding of a king, do you think that that led to a bias in his view of God, which possibly led to a bias in the whole Bible as a construct? Um, all biases are not bad. Okay? You cannot understand anything without predispositions. Okay? You're, you're sort of born with some predispositions genetically, and then you begin to experience things. This is hot, it hurts. This is cold, it hurts. This is warm, this is, this is good. Okay? Then your mother teaches you that some things that are warm are not good. Okay? Um, but the reality is, is that um, you have to have predispositions to understand anything. So predispositions or biases are not all evil. The question is, were they good ones or not? Okay. Now, being a follower of Jesus, as you are, I assume, being a follower of Jesus, I look at Moses' predispositions, many of which, yes, he did acquire from his being raised in the royal courts of Egypt. No question about it. Moses, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, look almost exactly like some ancient Near Eastern um, Atrahasis epic as the ancient Near Eastern stories. But what Moses is doing is telling the truth where these other stories were just make-believe. And he actually makes his story parallel them to show the truth against the make-believe, as it were. Okay? And the only reason I believe that is not because I can put it in the test tube and prove that. The reason I believe that is because I'm a follower of Rabbi Jesus. And Rabbi Jesus believed that. That Moses was the man. And that he was inspired by God. And no one had seen God like Moses had. And um, because Jesus believes it, I'm into it. So, yes, Moses did have biases and God used his experiences, just like he used Paul's experience of Jewish culture and, and Greco-Roman culture to form his theology. Uh, he, and just as Jesus himself grew in, in uh, wisdom and stature and favor with God and with people. So, yeah. yeah. One, one, one more, I'm afraid. Yes. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that the king is shepherd theme comes up in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. I could guess that this might involve the idea of protection or sustenance or direction or leadership, but I don't know that. And so I'm asking, what are the ideas? Good, wonderful. When, when, in, when these other cultures talk about kings as shepherds, or even fathers for that matter, what, what were the connotations? And that was one of the things you were asking that I've skipped over. I beg your pardon. Um, it, is, it is the king 
Hammurabi, for example, I just keep referring to him because it's a simple one. Everybody's heard of him. But Hammurabi, in, in the prologue to his law code, this is where he talks about himself, is presenting himself as a person who has protected, who has fed. He actually says he feeds such the black-haired people. Okay, uh, He takes care of these people. He um, protects them from the barbarians. He, um, he builds roads for them. He keeps the irrigation ditches clean uh, so that everybody can have food. This is all the, these are all the wonderful things that uh, Shepherd Hammurabi has done for you. And then he lays the law down. You see, because he does these great things that out of appreciation you should obey the laws. Does that sound familiar? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Benevolence and grace prior to the loyalty. And so that, that's a very common way in which uh, kings um, presented themselves. Now, you have to understand, of course, to some extent, Hammurabi was lying. But not Yahweh. He was telling the truth. Okay. Thank you so much for being here so long this evening. I apologize for that. And you're a great audience, and I appreciate it very much. <laughs>